Genesis 25 tells the story of Isaac. Uh, remember last week we saw Isaac uh, uh, in search of a wife and he found this match made in heaven, Rebecca. And, uh, and it was one of those kinds of love stories that, that touch all of our hearts. Well, 20 years have passed and Rebecca has not been able to get pregnant. And so um, as we go through the story, we're going to see how Isaac responds to that lack of pregnancy. We're going to see how Rebecca responds. And we're also going to see how her two sons, who are eventually born, uh, uh, Esau and Jacob, and we're going to see how they respond as well. So let's go through and, uh, and, and look at the text. Um, Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 and following. This is the account of the family of Isaac, the son of Abraham. When Isaac was 40 years old, he married Rebekah. 40 years old is a bit later in life to begin a family, even in ancient days. It's very probable that Rebekah was younger, perhaps much younger than him at that time. Rebekah was the daughter of Bethuel, the Armenian, from Padam Aram, and the sister of Laban, the Armenian. Verse 21, Isaac pleaded with the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was unable to have children. I, I think we see the best of Isaac in this situation. Uh, um, he knows that there's a promise. He knows that he's been promised by God this uh, tremendous family out of whom a nation will be born, and yet his wife can't get pregnant. And so rather than following the footsteps of his father and trying to resolve the situation on his own, he decides to pray. And the next verse says that the Lord answered Isaac's prayer and Rebekah became pregnant. And so that action had the good result. Isaac did what he was supposed to do acted in the correct way, and then God responded, and now Rebecca's pregnant. But she turns out, and she didn't know this at the time, but it turns out she had twins. And these two children were struggling with, with each other in the womb, and so she went to ask the Lord about it. Why is this happening to me, she asked. And so we see also Rebecca, uh, uh, as she's facing this difficult pregnancy, She's not sure why there's all this churning and movement and what's happening. She goes to seek a word from the Lord, and the Lord told her, The sons in your womb will become two nations. From the very beginning, the two nations will be rivals. One nation will be stronger than the other, and your older son will serve your younger son. And so that was the word from God. And uh, that obviously would have created a certain amount of anxiety, just not knowing what does this mean and, and, and how is this happening. It did help resolve her concern about why there's so much movement was because she was pregnant with twins. Verse 24, when the time came to give birth, Rebecca discovered that she did indeed have twins. The first one was very red at birth and covered with thick hair like a fur coat. And so they named him Esau. And the other twin born... Uh, was born with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when the twins were born. So we see that 20 years have passed. That During that time, Isaac and Rebekah have been praying, 
and uh, and then they sought guidance from the Lord to figure out what was happening with this pregnancy. So up to this point, they've done well. They've managed to follow the paths of what God wanted. They sought him out when they didn't understand and when things weren't going their way. As the boys grew, verse 27, Esau became a skillful hunter. He was an outdoorsman, but Jacob had a quiet temperament, preferring to stay at home. So, you know, you've probably had that experience where out of the same family, the same parents, the same home, you'll have children who are very different from one another. Temperaments are different. Uh, personalities are different. And, and that's okay. Each child has their own way of being. Esau was an outdoorsman, rugged, uh, 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 the kind that would probably drive a Jeep. Uh, but, but Isaac was more a homebody. Uh, he cooked and stayed at home and preferred to kind of have a quiet, introverted life. Verse 28, Isaac and Rebekah both kind of go down a wrong path. Isaac loved Esau because he, he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. We see the beginnings of this favoritism that is going to plague the nation of Israel for years and years to come. This favoritism where one parent chooses one child and the other parent chooses the other child or a different child. And so we have things set up for an ugly kind of situation. Now, the text doesn't say why Rebecca loved Jacob, but it's very possible because she knew what the prophecy had from the Lord had said. And so in her mind, she knew that this is where it was going to go. So she gave preference to Jacob. But once the boys come, then things get a little bit more skewed. Verse 29, one day when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau arrived home from the wilderness exhausted and hungry. Esau said to Jacob, I'm starved. Give me some of that red stew. And that's how Esau got his other name, Edom, which means red. All right, Jacob replied, but trade me your rights as the firstborn son, the birthright. Look, I'm dying of starvation, said Esau. What good is my birthright to me now? But Jacob said, first you must swear that your birthright is mine. So Esau swore an oath, thereby selling all his rights as the firstborn to his brother. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and lentil soup. Esau ate the meal, then got up and left. He showed contempt for his rights as the firstborn. Now, the rights of the firstborn in ancient times was pretty significant. You, the, the firstborn got half of all the inheritance, no matter how many other children there were. The firstborn got half of everything because they also had the responsibility for caring after the parents. They also got the blessing from the father and the opportunity to then carry on with all of the father's uh, 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 endeavors, whether it be the farm or whatever business they had. And, and so these were significant rights. Uh, the firstborn got the blessing and, and God had uh, specified that this law or practice of blessing the firstborn would be carried through. And so the firstborn child, especially the firstborn son, would be consecrated and set apart as holy for the Lord. Esau had that. And so we see his great falling uh, uh, in spite of all that he had to offer, his rugged outdoor uh, persona, 
Uh, later on, we'll see that he was a generous and forgiving person in spite of all those in a moment of physical hunger, he gives it all up. He didn't appreciate what he had and was willing to trade it off for something as simple as a bowl of lentil soup. Uh, we also see that Jacob is not off the hook. Uh, this is just the first glimpse that we see, but Jacob was kind of, well, his name is the trickster. He, he was deceptive. He was cunning. He, he knew how to manipulate situations and people to get what he wanted. Uh, and so we see both of these brothers ha have their downfall. Uh, Esau, in going for his physical appetites and, and trying to meet his needs and his, and his uh, uh, physical uh, hunger by trading off an extremely valuable uh, uh, asset and blessing in his life. And then we see Jacob uh, being driven by this need to achieve and to get uh, whatever he wanted and pretty much at whatever cost and whatever means possible. And so we could take the lesson down that road and think about, and perhaps you've heard lessons about the, 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 the dangers of, of giving in to your hunger or your appetite or not making wise choices. I mean, Esau's choices were, were horrific. They were just horrible. But for me personally, the, 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 the text hits me in, in a little different way. The, the issue I have is how could God choose Jacob? Jacob was a conniving uh, uh, a manipulative person. H how could that be the person that God chooses? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Esau made a bad decision, and he chose foolishly in the moment. But 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 Jacob was this cold-hearted, planning kind of conniving person. And 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 later on in in his life and in his brother's life, we we see that exemplified to a greater degree. And so the idea of how does God choose some people and not others is, is a difficult problem. Because if you're part of the chosen, then, oh, everything's good. But if you're part of the group that isn't chosen, if you've ever experienced the, the sensation uh, of not being chosen for a team, for, for a game, for, for a, 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 an activity, you know the, the hurt and, and the disappointment that, that can breed in someone's heart at not being chosen, not being good enough. And yet God chooses. Now, part of what God says all through Scripture is that he chooses the lesser. He chooses the weaker. He chooses the, uh, um, uh, the, the one who is disadvantaged. He chooses the underdog. Now, of these two, Jacob is obviously the underdog because Esau has all of these attributes larger than life persona. He's able to hunt. He's able to fend for himself. He's able to do all these things. He is the firstborn, and God chooses the lesser, the weaker. He chooses one who had to rely on different techniques and abilities to get by. You know, God chose Joseph, the youngest of all the brothers, to be the one through whom the blessings of Israel would come. He chose David to be the who was the youngest and the least 
to be the greatest king of Israel. Over and over, Jesus would emphasize that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Uh, God has a way of turning uh, uh, the, the tables on the perception of who is the most important. And Jesus says, if you want to be the most important, then you should become the least. And so this is true to God's nature. But, but you know, something happens. Something happens when we're the chosen ones. For some reason, uh, our, our human nature has a hard time not letting it go to our head and not letting it become because we're all that. That's why we're chosen. Uh, my homiletics professor uh, in seminary uh, was Dave Bland, and, and he wrote a, uh, a commentary segment of a, of a book that I read when I'm preparing my lessons. And, and Dave asks the question, what do we do with our chosenness? Because we're part of the chosen people of God. What do we do with that chosenness? What do we do with that, 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 uh, uh, that, the fact that God has chosen us? He goes back to the beginning father, founding fathers of our country. And he points out that when the 17th century Puritans arrived in this country, they understood that their covenant with God was totally dependent on God's will and God's initiative. It wasn't because they were special that they were chosen. It was because God was special. John Winthrop, the first governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, reminded the early settlers in 1630 that to be chosen meant to be chosen for the good of your neighbor. Not to be chosen so that you could get puffed up, but rather so that you could then bless the life of your neighbor. But as time went on, that mentality changed and got lost. And, and the mentality became more that we have been chosen because God thinks we are all that. And there developed in the United States this mentality, this, this thinking that, that was called uh, manifest destiny, that God had chosen this group of pilgrims to be the ones to, by his designation, to take over the rest of this country. And so with this idea in mind, uh, these settlers began expanding westward and they pretty much destroyed anybody and everything in their path because they felt that God had chosen this country and these people to take possession of the entire land to fulfill what they felt was God's, uh, the, their God-given destiny. The sense of responsibility to others had given way to privilege and the assumption of a divine right. I have a right, a mandate from God to be this way. Personally, I think we're seeing some of the fruits and the consequences of that kind of thinking throughout this country with the response to the COVID pandemic. You know, the United States is poised, has the resources, has the ability, has anything that's required, the raw materials, the medicines, the technology necessary to be at the forefront in leading the world in the response to the COVID virus. 
But rather than having the lowest numbers, we have the highest. Of all the developed nations in the world, the United States has the highest number of cases and the highest number of deaths. And the only thing that I think I can personally, just from my limited perspective, the only thing that I can attribute it to is this idea that, you know what? I have a right to do what I want. No one can tell me what to do. You can't tell me to wear a mask. You can't tell me not to have a party. I've heard in the news lately something so horrific that it, I have a hard time believing it's true. I've heard at a number of different universities and in different number of cities that they're having COVID parties. And in one case, there was actually a reward going to be offered for the person who got sick with the virus. And, and, and it's this mentality that I can't even begin to describe and comprehend that says, you know, we don't care. <laughs> We're going to do what we feel we have the right to do. So my rights are more important than anyone else's situation. I think our country is suffering the consequences of this sense of entitlement, of this sense of privilege that we can do what we want. And until we can humble ourselves, I think, individually and as a people, as a nation, and admit that the real problem is not the virus, the real problem lies much deeper within our own spirits and our hearts. And this, this stubbornness and this rebellion that we have, uh, until we can come to grips with that, I'm afraid we're not going to see our numbers decline much. And we're going to continue to see our friends, our loved ones, our neighbors uh, uh, continue to pass away at alarming rates. You know, I think we're a lot like both Esau and Jacob. Like Esau, we've all made careless decisions. We've made decisions spur of the moment where we've traded something valuable and precious in order to get something that's worth much less. We've given our lives to work. We've given our lives to different kinds of things. And at the end of our lives, we realize, wow, what did I lose? How much did I pay in my life for those things that at the end of the day, perhaps didn't, uh, wasn't worth as much? We've done the same thing with our sexuality. In order to achieve a certain level of pleasure now, we're willing to give up our purity and our uh, relationship with the Lord uh, we've lost sight of the big picture. We've gotten focused on the here and now, and uh, we've gotten so focused that right now is the only thing that really matters. Uh, we're, we're a lot like Esau in many ways. But, but I still think, but I also think we're like Jacob. Uh, we're willing to manipulate and do what we need to to get what we want. Uh, regardless of the fact that God wants us to be blessed and he wants to give us what we need, we're going to make it on our terms, in our fashion, and we're going to do it our way. And so I think we're still pushing the limits to see how far we can go and get what we want. And in spite of that, in spite of the fact that we are like Esau and that we are like Jacob, God still says, I want you. I choose you to be a part of my people and to be a part of my family. Not because of our righteous deeds, not because of our good works, not because we have all these characteristics, but rather because of who he is and uh, what he wants to accomplish for his purposes. So we have no grounds for boasting. 
you know, I think we're all unidentical twins in the church. But rather than thinking one of us is like the Arnold Schwarzenegger figure, that is reserved for Jesus. All of us, we're the Danny DeVitos. <laughs> we're uh, uh, struggling to, to make it and, and to find a level of purity. But yet, in spite of all our faults, in spite of all our shortcomings, through Jesus and our relationship with him, through our baptism and our inclusion into his family, we enjoy the blessings that First Peter tells us. You, we are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that we may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called us out of darkness. The purpose he has chosen us is so that we can proclaim his goodness, that we can become the blessing in the lives of our friends, our neighbors, and our family. So rather than taking our chosenness as a privilege that we have earned, we recognize that our chosenness is a result of God's actions and we receive it as a responsibility to care for one another. I pray you have a good week and that throughout this week you can keep focused on God's big picture. As we conclude uh, uh, with this part of the sermon today, I'm going to invite one of our elders, uh, Cheryl Hudson, to come forward. He's going to lead a prayer for the needs of our family. We'll have one more song and then we'll end our transmission today. God bless you. Be well.